This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by Ed Reed, our Africa and LNG editor, and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And we'll start with Hamish. We trailed it last week. Now it's here, causing a stir, a big new oily addition to the Aberdeen skyline, Hamish. We did trail it last week, although I think we were all pretty speculative at that point, but um, the Port of Aberdeen must know something that we didn't, because Mm -hmm. uh, a few days after we were discussing the matter, such a rig did pitch up in the Granite City, um, the noble noble innovator to be exact, uh, along with its 200 metre tall legs. Uh, It's now a feature of the skyline in certain parts of the city for the next few weeks, um, to the annoyance of some, but we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, so it will be in the northeast for between 60 and 90 days uh, while work goes on to prepare it for decommissioning wells in the central North Sea for BP. Uh, Port of Aberdeen says contracts for the maintenance work will be dished out to local vendors delivering a multi-million pound investment to the local economy. Uh, and I think most importantly, probably from their point of view, they've got that first rig maintenance contracts over the line. They can now start building up a, a track record and a and a foundation to, to go and bid for other work as well. Um, I was actually getting the train to Edinburgh on Saturday, funnily enough, just after posting the story up, so got a good look at it out of the window as we made our way south. I think my girlfriend was a mixture of kind of concerned and pitying at my excitement over seeing a big hunk of metal. I had a moment like that. <laughs> I was like that with my wife, Becca. Like We were at the beach, and I was like, oh, look, you can see it from all around the city. Oh, it's like 200 metres high. This is incredible. And she's like, Alison, nobody cares. Stop. <laughs> it's supposed to be on holiday. A carbon copy of our conversation as well, yeah. It's just sad, isn't it? So, But there, there we are. Got to take your kicks where you can get them at some point. Indeed. Um, but on a slightly separate note as well, but I think it's worth pointing out, but Diamond Offshore's Ocean Great White is currently headed north as well from Kishon Port to carry out drilling operations on um, BP Shallion and Loyal Fields west of Shetland. Uh, so dual contracts. Good news comes in the wake of contractors flagging concerns recently as well that a lack of tangible pron- projects, windfall taxes and everything in between could spur operators to send their rigs to fairer shores and i don't think two deals is probably enough to prove that isn't the case but it's certainly a step in the right direction uh but yeah coming back to the noble innovator there are those uh predictably who aren't happy about it pitching up in aberdeen um friends of st fittick's park say it's being imposed on the community of Torrey without any consultation and uh, accused the port of secrecy over its arrival, which is hardly surprising given activists' love of disrupting rigs, especially in the last last few weeks. But but anyway, so this is the group who are opposing the development of the energy transition zone on land in Torrey. Uh, And I think they make quite a lot of good points, but the kind of thing I would take away from this is that if you're wanting to ensure that work continues to stick in Dundee, and maybe they are, but then making it more difficult for rigs to come to Aberdeen is a pretty good way of doing it. It's not much skin off operators' noses to to send it 60 miles south rather than rather than north. Um, I mean, yeah, I live in the city centre. I couldn't get a parking space on Sunday after doing a big shop because of the Spectra Festival. I quite often can't get a table at my local pub when there's a... a a show on at HMT, but I don't think that means I should be consulted when Book of Mormon funds to come to Aberdeen. I went to the Spectra. The queues were literally about a mile long. It was ridiculous, although it looked pretty cool. It was good. I enjoyed it. Good. As was Book of Mormon. Other musicals are available, of course. But I mean, yeah, they, they kind of rightly point to the lower levels of health and average life expectancy in Torrey. You would think that money and jobs in the local area will go a long way to alleviating that. 
probably are questions about how much of the work will actually go to benefit the community but then i suppose make that case rather than rather than why should the rig pitch up it also covers literally a postage stamp of the horizon view as well so it's not like it's an actual skyscraper and it will be gone soon. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I mean, I was off when, when that particular piece ran and, and there was a moment when I saw it, I did have a moment, I was like, oh, here we go, this won't be worth the trouble. Um, and I do think actually, you know, the people complaining probably is the minority, but, but that said, you know, some of these people are the ones that live closest to it uh, and feel, I guess, that there has been a lack of community consultation. Now, the, the impression I got about the alleged uh, secrecy was around security. Um, you know, we have seen protesters um, uh, coming along to oil rigs whilst they're out, or FPSOs, I should say, whilst they're out in the middle of the ocean, never mind when they're just coming in uh, near shore uh, into Aberdeen. So I don't think that can be dismissed out of hand. I think the most important point probably is the, you know, how how can they harbour and the port demonstrate that this work is going to benefit the local community? I think that is a totally valid point. I, I guess also what we need to keep in mind is that the views of businesses and the port itself aren't the only valid views to publicize, you know, and, and where oil and gas vessels go, and this is not a unique situation, complaints do tend to follow. You know, we did um, Hunterston uh, on the West Coast last year when the Foynhaven FPSO came in. A lot of complaints about that from the local community. The Cromarty Firth we've visited on this podcast numerous times about noise complaints and light pollution, whatever else, um, due to the number of rigs around there. So I think... You know, I think if there's ever a question about an oil and gas vessel coming into what is a huge industrial port, I know there's a lot of talk about cruise liners and that, and that seems to be going on, but it is in the main industrial port and it's not going to change. Um, you know, I think this is to be expected to an extent. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the local jobs line, that that hard to argue with that. And I think it's certainly not wrong to publicize that point of view. I suppose the onus is now on Port of Aberdeen to show why it actually benefits to kind of come up with some tangible figures as to as to how Tory will benefit or has benefited from from this contract and things. And I mean, I, I think a large part of it comes from that people don't like the South Harbour. Everything it does is going to be criticised because people don't like it. And that's fine. That's, that's their prerogative. But I also kind of think it perhaps risks undermining legitimate concerns as and when they do arrive. Um, but I think this is perhaps a, a wider UK problem in that we seem to be a nation who don't like large infrastructure projects and will do everything to oppose them wherever possible. And then we complain about lack of jobs. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And lack of infrastructure, lack of transport, everything, yeah. A bit tricky, a bit tricky. But I mean, I think it looks pretty cool, uh, to be honest. I really I, I think it's a quite a cool uh, addition to the Aberdeen skyline. We had a video up this, uh, this morning as we record, um, somebody... It was a worker. Didn't want to be named, but you know, on on the rig, climbed up the the, the legs or part of the legs, part of the the, the rig, um, legally and totally fine, I believe. Um, where you can again get a view of, um, you know, the, uh, it was a beautiful day, North Sea, South Harbour, Torrey Battery, um, over the looking the golf course and indeed wider kind of Torrey Tullis, uh, Alton's kind of area. It looks really nice. Um, from up there. I don't think many people will get that particular viewpoint. But uh, yeah, you can see it from miles around. It ain't going to be around here too often. What I'd be quite interested in is finding out how many more rigs are going to make their base in Aberdeen. Because the idea here is that, you know, these are these are vessels that would normally, as you say, Hamish, go to Dundee or go to uh, Cromarty Firth or indeed go over to Norway. Now, for the first time, the oil capital of Europe is actually going to have oil and gas rigs. Um, so, you know, 
How many more are going to show up in Aberdeen? Is there any way that that's going to help in terms of this issue you mentioned of lack of work? Uh, probably not, would be my suspicion. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a prevalent issue here and having another home base, if you like, for maintenance to get after work when it becomes available. I can't see that hurting uh, in, in any respect, um, other than perhaps the, the local community. But uh, hopefully there's a way to assuage those concerns. Ed, what do you make of the Tory Aberdeen local issue that affects you in no way whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's. I mean, it, it, it sounds like you're you're making a lot of good points. I mean, I think obviously when uh, thinking about those kind of big energy projects, you know, the, there there is always that kind of question about sort of local support and buy-in, isn't there? And I, I suppose you know, kind of, I guess the kind of the 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 one that I kind of come back to is some of the uh, some of the the, the protests and, and, and opposition we've seen to, uh, to to onshore fracking where obviously um, communities have been up in arms about mostly about about things like noise levels about about seismicity and things like that um, and there is this kind of question around how you get sort of local support isn't there and I think as you say it's that kind of way of demonstrating really concretely the benefits that that, that locals are going to see uh, obviously with, with 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 onshore shale it's it's more around sort of community funds and things but I think, as as as, as Hamish has pointed out, it would be it would be good to see some sort of you know tangible um, benefits as a result of this, uh, this 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 rig move, and obviously the ones to come, right? Of the kind of creation of a of, of some sort of you know local industries is obviously going to be welcome wherever. Oh, I guess my, my my one question would be, what what has Aberdeen got that that, that Dundee doesn't? Does this mean that uh, is 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 Aberdeen's win uh, Dundee's uh, loss? It's got a deep water port now, which it didn't have before, so that's the uh, the main differential now um i i don't know if it has things that dundee doesn't i mean the fact that dundee's had rigs there for years would suggest that perhaps a lot of the supply chain companies that will service them have already set up base there they many of them might well have bases in the northeast as well i mean just to come back to that point on community kind of opposition to energy projects it's quite interesting the different ways in which they're viewed like for kind of fracking a scene as a completely justified opposition to it and probably rightly so but then Oh, community opposition to say onshore wind farms is often kind of seen as these just people who hate renewables and 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 uh, kind of old curmudgeons living in the countryside whereas i'm sure they probably have legitimate concerns as well there's just quite an interesting optics b- between the way that these are between the ways that they're seen yeah maybe, maybe lastly just on the, the difference with dundee I, I think the idea with this is that it will only be there for a minimal kind of period of time for maintenance before heading out. Some of the rigs in Dundee, I believe, are, have been stacked for a very long time, and I think that's where they're hoping not to have a similar situation in Aberdeen. Um, but we'll we'll see. We will see. So uh, thank you, Hamish. We'll stack our rig there for the time being. And next up, it's board, Boardroom Dreams Shattered with Ed Reed and Capricorn Energy. Preconceptions about the pace at which the energy transition would occur have been upended by gas and energy price spikes. Amid this short-term volatility though, the UK must take steps to follow through with its net zero commitments. In the fourth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around electric vehicles. Everyone seems to be thinking about moving to EVs, but is the UK ready? In this episode, Maria Benson, partner at EY, Neil Isaacson, CEO of Liberty Charge, and Peter Dominey, COO of Tether, talk us through some of the challenges around how to keep this new fleet moving, what we need, what we're getting, and maybe even some ideas about the alternatives. That's Net Zero Nudge, episode four on EVs, out now. So, Shattered Dreams with Ed, that's another uh, new podcast segment we'll get going. Um, Ed, 
what's happened with this uh, Capricorn uh, New Med murder deal and uh, how did it all go so badly wrong? Yes, well, exactly. Spoiler alert, it has gone wrong. Uh, I mean, I think this is the thing. I mean, I think just in the last sort of, you know, I suppose year or so, we've seen a number of these instances where... Uh, shareholder opposition to uh, these kind of big kind of mergers, you know, which are obviously kind of a staple of the industry, have have, have just knocked them sideways. And I think it's 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 a really fascinating uh, case where clearly uh, Capricorn's uh, board executives have really, I don't know, misjudged the mood, uh, misjudged uh, the company, misjudged the shareholders. I mean, I, don't, I obviously there are a number of ways in which you can you can you can dissect that, but. To, 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 to wind the clock back a bit, early last year, uh, Capricorn Energy and Tullow Oil set out a plan to merge. It would be essentially about sort of a 50-50 group. Tullow is, uh, is sort of Ghana-focused with some other sort of West African bits. Capricorn is largely Egypt-focused following its acquisition of some, uh, some, some ex-shell uh, assets in the Western Desert. Obviously, also with with some with some some legacy assets, including I believe in the North Sea. So this was a, a sort of a slightly sort of a strange combination of this sort of Egypt meets Ghana kind of tie up. Um, people came out against it for one reason or another. It, it, it fell apart at the same time. Capricorn immediately switched for its affections from Tullow to Numed, an Israeli company that's uh, producing gas primarily in in, in the, the East Mediterranean. And um, Capricorn would have been a much smaller part of, of, of Numed. It was, you know, sh- Capricorn shareholders would have been holding about 10% of Numed, uh, but it would have kept its, 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 its London listing. And there was, you know, talk about sort of a special, uh, you know, dividend, special returns to shareholders, which seemed like, you know, it was, it was everything that the Tullow deal wasn't, right? It was, um, the Tullow deal was criticized for not giving enough to shareholders, for uh, giving Tullow too much in return for too little. Uh, this it seemed you know like shareholders would get uh, would get cash uh, they would also get sort of continuing exposure and and and, and Capricorn would have um, still a part to play in that sort of larger sort of wider wider picture as as, as part of that sort of wider new med group pretty much immediately after the after the deal was announced though uh the uh activist shareholders uh led primarily by a, a, a fund called Palace of Capital came out against the deal said that uh you know that the that the it wasn't giving sufficient rewards to shareholders and they've really fought this sort of dogged sort of uh trench warfare even sort of uh conflict of you know Palliser and, 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 and kind of Capricorn each kind of giving briefings and trying to sort of sway shareholders. And I mean, I have to admit that, you know, initially I was I was kind of skeptical about Palliser's chances of success. You know, you do tend to see these kind of things kind of popping up and, and kind of really going nowhere. Um, but this time it turns out that, you know, they, they, they've managed to make their case and, and, and it's all fallen apart. So um in 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 january they the the uh capricorn said that they would hold a vote on probably the first uh to initially they said they wanted to both uh carry out the board chain the, the board vote that the palliser wanted and uh also the vote on the on the new med deal at the same time palliser said that was inappropriate to change the board and, and 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 also vote on the deal at the same time they said that they wouldn't give the board enough time to to look 
Capricorn eventually capitulated, said they would push the, the, the new med vote back. So they held their, their vote on the board on February the 1st. Capricorn's board was toppled. Uh, they've got six new board members, um, including, including a guy called Chris Cox, who's the former CEO of Spirit Energy, I believe, and is now the, the, now this, the interim CEO of Capricorn. Um, and uh, just a couple of days ago, they said that the, the you know Capricorn and Newmed both mutually agreed that the, the the deal was off. So now it's it's kind of that classic case of of, of the dog that catches the car that it's been chasing. There's there's obviously this sort of desire for something different. Palace has talked a lot about you know returning cash to shareholders, about you know finding a, a different way to grow, about you know sort of maybe being more sensible, kind of cutting some of those some of those sort of high GNA costs. But obviously they're going to, have to going to they're going to, have to actually kind of put up and, uh, and and sort of follow through with their with their plans. So, I mean, I, I was I was hoping that you guys you know might might be able to shed some light on on Chris Cox and Spirit Energy and is is there, is there a model there that that we might see for see for Capricorn going kind of going forwards? Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, Chris Cox. I mean, I've never actually met him. I, I know. Um, predecessor Mark Lammy, uh, formerly of this parish, um, interviewed him a good number of times. He always, uh, Chris Cox always seemed, from the articles I read, very competent and uh, and quite an interesting guy. The reality about Spirit Energy, though, um, is that it is a, in runoff mode and it has become something of the unwanted child of Centrica. Um, Spirit Energy is the North Sea oil and gas exploration business that is owned by Centrica. And um, it became a bit of a. If you looked at Centrica's results over the past few years, you know they're, they're t- not 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 today as we record. Actually, it seems that there isn't any mention of Spirit t- today. But they've been selling it off, and for a long time, it's been kind of this stick to you know them beating it um, and just saying it's been underperforming, underperforming, underperforming. And everyone I've spoken to anecdotally who's been involved in the company, um, hopefully this is a fair thing to say, but you know everyone I've spoken to certainly is kind of verified what's been said around that. And, and there have been certainly consultations on redundancies in recent times. Now, we can't obviously pin that all on Chris Cox. Clearly, there's a number of factors going on here. We have the, we had the COVID downturn most recently uh, being one of the most prominent uh, factors here. But I think it's clear that Spirit's been in a bit of trouble for, for some time. And uh, that's, uh, there was some positive news last week that Hamish might will talk about in terms of um, a, a gas field being repurposed. But yeah, so I don't know. I'm not sure what Chris Cox will bring to this or not. I mean, it seems certainly that, uh, from what you describe, Ed, that uh, Capricorn needed that uh, the position of the board was pretty much untenable after what two failed um, growth deals. So yeah, I, I guess they needed to bring someone else in. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was looking from what I knew of the new Med deal. It seemed like, you know, Israeli, Egyptian, independent producer powerhouse you know that kind of makes sense on paper but um you know clearly they're they're keen on a deal of some kind uh, you know are they likely to try it again anytime soon after this track record i mean that would be what i'd be thinking about but yeah um hamish you, you covered that spirit piece um last week is that right was it last week or two weeks ago i feel to just a blur i did cover it though oh yeah i know i know i covered it uh yeah so the repurposing as uh, gas fields in morecambe bay uh, for kind of ready ready to turn them into a, a world-class carbon capture and storage cluster that is kind of separate to high net even though it is in the same part of the world um so that i mean kind of the good news for aberdeen was that although it's um in morecambe and it will be the kind of barrow terminals that that will be where a lot of the the boots on the ground will be they promised 
job boost to Aberdeen. I, mean, I don't know if Spirit now becomes more attractive for Centrica to keep hold of, given its or given the oil and gas prices and given projects such as these. Um, they've obviously spun off the Norwegian kind of division of Spirit, haven't they? So that's that's now gone, and they they registered that kind of accounting hit in their um in their results, which came out today. But but yeah, no, it's an interesting one that um that Morecambe scheme. Um, I think that's. I suppose you know, like looking. So looking at, at, at Capricorn's sort of assets, right? It's got this sort of non-operated sort of uh, asset in Egypt, which is obviously producing gas. There are some challenges around kind of getting bills paid in Egypt, and there's also sort of a sort of a handful of exploration projects: uh, Mexico, Suriname. They've got a sort of a, a, a potentially large prospect in Mauritania. I mean, I, I, I suspect, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I wonder whether those exploration prospects will get canned, essentially. And, uh, and then uh, I guess it's kind of a question of probably my suspicion would be maybe just sort of pay out that sort of the, the kind of the cash on the balance sheet to, to sort of shareholders and possibly you know run run that egyptian asset down and 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 just kind of uh just kind of reap the reap the profits as they come i don't i mean i it's it's hard to see you know given these two failed sort of mergers uh the the, the sort of the plans for another acquisition of, of that sort i mean i guess you know everyone wants to buy production which is obviously a challenge given and it's obviously driving up uh valuations so I mean, I yeah, I, I I wonder what comes next, and it it, it feels like the, uh, the 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 spirit energy story suggests that uh, maybe it's going to be a sort of a, more of a sort of a, a, a harvesting what they've got and, and sort of uh, selling down rather than uh, bold expansion. But um, Chris Cox, uh, if you're if you're listening, give us a call <laughs> at energyvoice.com and uh, we can have a chat. Lovely, <laughs> lovely, well done, Ed. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, well, thanks for the, the boardroom bluster, Ed. Uh, so next up, it's stormy weather for offshore wind. The world is in a race to cut emissions, with a number of governments taking steps to try and secure their industries a more competitive advantage. Bigger, Faster, Better aims to evaluate what progress the UK is making and brings in comparisons from around the world to allow us to think through who is making the most progress and what countries could be doing to do better. In the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, Energy Voice in association with Womble Bond Dickinson drills into some of the questions around onshore wind. Why is progress so slow in England? Are politics the main Challenge are other parts of Europe moving faster? To get some answers to these questions and more, download and listen to the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better. To hear me in conversation with Womble Bond Dickinson partner Chris Tanner and SSE Director for Onshore Renewables Finley McCutcheon. Bigger, Faster, Better on Onshore Wind out now. Okay, so there's something of a perfect storm seems to be brewing for offshore wind contractors. We've had in recent times uh, companies like Saipem and Subsea 7 warning that wind farm projects are impacting their profits. Saipem had something about a year ago with the EDF NNG project in Scotland, for example. We've had Sapura pulling out of a Taiwan wind project. We've also got developers um, walking away from projects like Commonwealth Wind in the US. So there's a bit of turmoil going on and a lot of possible reasons for it. You know, project financing debt, government pressures on net zero, for example, unrealistic budgets, you know, you can go on. But the International Marine Contractors Association, which is a group that represents 700 companies globally, 
uh, including some upper tier contractors, you know, Subc7, Technip FMC, etc. They've put forward this uh, their own idea as to why this is all happening. It basically boils down to unsustainable contract terms, which require this fundamental economic reset for offshore wind, as they put it. So I mentioned some of those contractors earlier, and that would seem to play in here. Imka argues uh, that as things stand, contractors are being asked to take on these a, a massive portion of the risk of the liability, the cost, uh, which can't go on. They say normal returns are needed. You need to reduce costs, improved allocation of risk, uh, i.e. not all of it dumped on contractors. Um, and, you know, I guess there's quite a few facets of what they're asking for, but, you know, in a nutshell, that's it, you know, sh- a fair share of risk and cost. And there's there's good reason to do it. Basically, they say these unacceptable issues and risk mean projects do risk grinding to a halt uh, at a time when, you know, we're, we're projecting these massive global offshore wind targets. Uh, but at the same time, we're in this inflationary spike uh, coming in. And that kind of, the, the conflation of those two issues, um, you know, without improved sharing of costs, it could mean that certain projects uh, grind to a halt and these global targets for offshore wind being under pressure. So IMCA has produced this new renewables contracting principles document, which sounds really sexy, I know, um, but they hope that will galvanize government and industry action here. So just some of the examples they've mentioned, you know, payment terms, issues around delayed payments, you know, we've seen, well, they say that developers need to manage their cash flow more responsibly. You know, we've seen in oil and gas what happens to smaller contractors down the supply chain if, you know, a customer breaches a 30-day payment term. You know, that's not going to hurt a tier one contractor, but for a small uh, group providing a specialized service, you know, they may not have a massive uh, customer base or massive uh, cash in hand. So if they're, you know, if if it's over 30 days or over their uh, payment term, then that can have immense pressure on a smaller contractor. And I guess what we're seeing is some of the issues that have historically taken place in oil and gas are now seeming to replicate themselves in offshore wind. You know, similar problems exist for insurance cover, weather risk, damages for delay. Liability. Imca said contractors can be exposed to unlimited liabilities and ultimately company failure. Uh, that says there needs to be a limit, a maximum point agreed before deals are struck. That feels very much like common sense to me, but there we are. Apparently, it's not being done at the moment. So, yeah, calling for this maximum financial exposure to be agreed before deals are struck. Uh, what else? They say there's no standard construction contract in offshore wind at the moment. Um, and the bottom line is, yeah, contractors are being, uh, asked, are, they're, they're being, they're taking on risks on projects that they're used to taking on these risks, but there are limits and that needs to be addressed. And they say if this industry, this offshore wind industry is to be sustainable, it needs to be economically sustainable. So, you know, interesting development coming out of offshore wind. It comes at a time, as I say, we have these huge projects globally uh, in the UK, for example, you know, what are we, 50 gigawatts, five zero by 2030 is the aim, which is massive. And then if you do have this I think quite pertinent point about the inflationary cycle, the inevitable inflationary cycle, as Imka puts it, then, yeah, you can see how that can all come together to a head, I think. I mean, it, it, it feels a, a lot like uh, the, you know, the challenges that you're, you know, you're talking about sort of in, in, in oil and gas. I mean, it reminds me distinctly of uh, sort of uh, LNG projects, uh, particularly in the, in the US, where there were these sort of massive sort of mismatches between kind of contractor bids and, and, and kind of what the operators were looking for. But it's always been that challenge, hasn't it? Like, how do you, how do you kind of, you know, bridge that gap, especially when you're trying to bring the prices down, right? 
I mean, I think obviously that's a, that's a lot of the appeal of offshore wind and, you know, of, of, of other resources. Obviously, you've got to be competitive. So how do you keep on, you know, bringing that price down, uh, you know, whatever the sort of the CFD price was, uh, you know, kind of fell to? How do you keep that kind of level of pressure up on, on, on prices for the consumer and therefore carry on building out? And at the same time, provides a sort I suppose sort of sufficient security to these guys who are kind of gonna be going ahead and, and, and building things. Obviously, you know, catastrophic company failure doesn't sound like uh, any way to kind of move the industry forwards. But at the same time, there is there is there is there is that kind of there is always gonna be that that challenge, isn't there? Yeah. No, absolutely. Ed. I mean I think I, I guess in the recent downturns we've seen here in oil and gas, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh I, I I hate to say it now, but I'm going to say it. Collaboration, um, and it's been said so often that people, you know, it kind of loses all meaning. But I think what what it should probably mean in this uh, instance is okay. Maybe we can't bring down, you know, you know, still need to be competitive on cost. But are there other areas in terms of improved contracting models that might could could be imp- improved here? And yeah, I think specifically that issue of liability and risk. You know, we've seen we have seen you know issues around. Um, Heavy lift vessels, you know, failing um, because perhaps they're out, perhaps they're mispurposed. I don't know, but you know that can cause delays on projects. And you know, if if there isn't a reasonable share of risk and rewards, then yeah, companies will fail. And if we see enough companies failing as a result of these kind of projects and these kind of problems, then there'll be no choice. And I think I think that's I guess why IMCA have they were quite clear in their statement. You know, it's not just one for industry. To handle, they are quite keen for governments to get involved in this as well. I'm not sure if that's if that means something to do with regulatory issues. It feels to me like a, you know, if, if there's enough will in the industry, they should be able to come up with a decent contracting model um, without intervention of um, governments. I, I would have thought. Uh, and I suppose also an interesting point is that IMCA, despite being a contractors' association, it does have some uh, offshore wind developers big oil and gas uh, operators bp for example i think i think it was scottish scottish power as well um in their co- in their in their group of companies involved which i thought huh if we have the developers and the operators here surely they've got enough uh, power to solve many of these issues you're talking about and apparently you're speaking on behalf of them but uh, that's for uh, another time we're going to be speaking to the mk ceo to see what he has to say about all that but yeah i mean look yeah enough companies fail there, you know, there'll be no no choice. And then, if you want to hit these these targets, and you know, the prices are going up with inflation, something's got to give. Uh, I think so. You know, and I think I think maybe the last another point to make here is, you know, we've talked about before about a lack of vessels, construction vessels for offshore wind, and we're already looking at a pretty extreme bottleneck on that without this. So. To what extent do these market pressures exacerbate that for, that issue further? If you know. You know, those companies trying to diversify, maybe out of oil and gas, you know, maybe convert some of their vessels for offshore wind or, or looking at it, you know, but then they see this plethora of issues. I mean, there's plenty of work, but if it becomes just more trouble than it's worth, then yeah, there, there might there might be something there. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting kind of dilemma. And I'd be interested to see how they how they seek to solve it. I think a large part of it comes down to uh, standardization, really, because the, I mean, the industry is quite, it is well established, but in some many respects, it's still finding its way, still trying to find out what the best technologies are for for deploying in certain weather types and everything. I think somebody described it as a conference recently, and you know that bit in a Wallace and Gromit where Gromit's laying the track ahead of the, ahead of the train coming directly behind it. It's very much a situation <laughs> like that, where it's actually... 
there's probably time to try and take stock, try and work out what what these turbines are going to look like, and then you're able to benefit from economies of scale, mass production. Companies are better able to take investment decisions, knowing that the technology they're investing in isn't going to be obsolete. The the, the kind of Kodak argument. Um, so that's a that's a perhaps an easy way to try and to try and get a hold of it. Although it's probably not that easy to to, to standardize, and and again, it, well, it pains me to say it, it probably comes back to that collaboration point of. OEMs, developers getting around the table and deciding, right, this is actually what what we're going to want. These are what the, these are the turbines that are going to be installed to to get us to that that fifty gigawatts target, and then, in theory, everything follows after that. I mean, I suppose just just to kind of come back into that kind of regulatory kind of uh, question that you kind of you kind of raised, Alistair, and 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 uh, just thinking about sort of CFDs, right, which are obviously just sort of you know financial derivatives. It, it feels like you know there there could be scope for in the design of CFDs to sort of say, look, you know, we you know when you're when you're when you're working on these projects, which are obviously massive undertakings, which have sort of strategic importance, we maybe we could we could we could build in some sort of uh, more sustainable way of contracting, right, so to ensure that they get to the finish line because obviously everyone loses if uh, if if these if these plans fall apart so that may be where, one way in which uh, in which a regulator could uh, could 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 help uh, drive some change absolutely yeah i mean it seems like they're going to have to get everybody around the table um one way or the other to at least discuss it what what the outcomes may or may not be we'll we'll, we'll find out but you know it would it would <laughs> I don't know. I think I think that's quite a pragmatic suggestion, but I, I do feel like if if you're having to get the government to step in here to sort out your you know contracts, then you know, guys, come on, we can do better than this. So that that's that's kind of how I'm, I'm viewing it. But we you know we'll see. I, maybe that's you know, push comes to shove. Maybe that's what's needed. I don't know. But anyway, we will blow away with that. What a terrible terrible segue, and I'm sorry for it. Um, and that is it. For this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud, thank you to Ed and Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.